0: Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the third episode of season five. I hope you all managed to check out episode two last week. It focused on the life and crimes of teenage parent killer Brian Blackwell. I've had some lovely feedback on the back of the episode so thank you for that. You'll know if you've been listening for a while that I like to break the ice a little bit at the start of each episode before we get, you know, into the dark-nitty-gritty shit. The first opening Icebreaker segment is this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. This week's Dad Fact is thus. Upside-down cat. A long-bristled artist brush is ideal for brushing out dust. Hmm. (laughs) Rhyme. And, well, kinda. And dirt... From inside the air vents of your car. Okay. So a long bristled brush. An artist... Who has an artist brush to hand? It's probably a good idea, but we'll get rid of that one. Second one. Let's get on to the second opening icebreaker. It sounds like this. The Serial Killer's Book of Haiku. Hi-ya! And here is this week's haiku. Grabbed from behind. Hand over mouth, gun to the face. You live if silent. We've got a lovely picture there of someone looking very scared with a nose ring. Wow. There's some dark ones in this, by the way. This is the serial killer's book of Haiku Two by Rose Bundy, link in bio if you want it. A haiku, if you're wondering, it's a Japanese poem made up of 17 syllables, three lines of five, seven, and five, meant to be read in one breath absolutely gruesome. I did mention last week if you want to send me a copy of your own haiku that you've made up you can enter a competition to win one of Rose's books. I've received uh, zero entries so far. If you do want to give it a go you've got until Valentine's Day to do so which is what Monday? So yeah you've got until Monday send them in if you want to win a copy of one of Rose's murderous serial killer haiku books. With my intro waffle complete let's get into this week's episode. This case was suggested by listener Scott Jerry via email. This week we're in Barnet, a North London borough. There appear to be three North London boroughs if you're interested in knowing such a trivial fact. You know I like giving them out. The other two are Haringey and Enfield. Within Barnet, our story takes place in the area of East Finchley. And here is five quickfire facts about East Finchley. Number one, East Finchley is home to the UK headquarters of McDonald's. Though ironically, Barnet Council denied the company permission to open a restaurant there following pushback from local residents. Number two, TV personality Jerry Springer grew up on Chandos Road in East Finchley. He's actually British-American, which I didn't realise. Number three, the Phoenix Cinema, which opened in 1910, is one of the oldest operating cinemas in England. Number four, English singer-songwriter George Michael was born in East Finchley. And number five, There's a popular local fable that notorious 18th century English highwayman Dick Turpin either planted, carved or frequently hid behind a oak tree while waiting to ambush travellers. But sadly, this appears to be nothing more than a myth. There's very little evidence that links Turpin to East Finchley or Finchley Common, as it was known back then. Pretty interesting facts this week, no? With a population of 15,989, according to the 2011 census, East Finchley was once called home by the villain of this week's story. The villain in question was named Colin Hatch. Before I start, I feel obliged to let you know that this week's episode will touch upon the subjects of paedophilia, molestation and the murder of a child. As always, feel free to skip this one if you're likely to be distressed by hearing that sort of content. There's no official date of birth readily available for Colin Hatch, not that I could find anyway, but by working backwards, it looks like he was born in 1972. Details of his very early childhood, as with his official date of birth, aren't easily found, so I'll start this story in 1987, when Colin Hatch was 15 years old. Can you remember what was going on in your life at 15, dear listener? Probably being in high school, no doubt. Maybe you spent your evenings with friends with a cheeky bottle of white lightning at the local park to pass the time. Whatever you were doing, I reckon it's safe to say you weren't fantasising about sexually assaulting and strangling children. I bloody hope not, anyway. With Colin Hatch, that's exactly what he was doing, at the tender age of 15. As I alluded to earlier in my content warning, Colin Hatch was a paedophile. He was sexually attracted to prepubescent children. I must admit I'm worried about my search history being flagged after researching this week's episode. Here's a random fact I discovered between vomiting and research in this case. If a paedophile is sexually attracted to prepubescent children, do you know what they call people who are sexually attracted to older children? At the opposite end of the scale, the term ephibophile, I think I'm saying that right, is E-P-H-E-B-O-P-H-I-L-E a febophile, is used to describe someone who is sexually attracted to children who have reached puberty, so generally those aged 15 and up. In the middle, we have individuals labelled as hebephiles, hebe files. Those people are sexually attracted to children who are just about to go through or are going through puberty. My last point on these mentally unwell people is that I need to clarify that paedophilia focuses on sexual attraction, whereas a sex offender may not be attracted to children at all, rather they commit said crimes for other reasons. Bringing it back to Colin Hatch, he admitted his first offence against children in 1987. He was 15, remember. He sexually assaulted two 14-year-old boys. His punishment for this first offence was that he was supervised for two years that meant Colin's movements and actions were overseen by a trained probation officer the supervision either wasn't thorough or it was just a cop out of a disciplinary outcome because in 1988 a year later Colin reoffended he sexually assaulted an 11-year-old this time for that offense he was handed chock another supervision order Because Colin was 16 at the time, the supervision order was put in place and involved the appointment of someone from child services to oversee Colin's movements. Suppose it's comparable to probation for adults. Did that stop Colin Hatch from sexually assaulting more minors? Did it bollocks? If it didn't work the first time, why the hell would it work the second time? In January 1991, three years after his most recent offence, Colin's crimes escalated. This time he abducted, indecently assaulted, falsely imprisoned and strangled a young boy who was either 8, 11 or 14, depending on which source you use. Because this was his third offence and he was under a supervision order slash probation at the time, Colin was this time handed a three and a half year jail sentence. I say jail sentence. Colin was actually sent to Feltham Young Offender Institution in West London, which houses males between the ages of 15 and 21. Judge Brian Capstick made the decision to send Colin to a young offender institution at the Old Bailey on December 13th, 1991. That's important because a month prior, in November 1991, Dr Anthony Wilkins, a psychiatrist who had spoken with Colin and assessed his threat to the public, recommended he be sent to the notorious Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital. Dr Wilkins described Colin as "...a menace who was highly dangerous," and likely to pose a serious threat to the safety of life to the public. Despite this damning testimony from a respected psychiatrist, Colin was refused entry to Broadmoor, as they didn't deem him dangerous enough. If that's true, how crazy is that? The reason I question the accuracy of that statement is that Dr Margaret Orr, who was chair of the admissions panel at Broadmoor at the time, said that Dr Wilkins didn't submit a formal written referral for Colin Hatch to be assessed by Broadmoor's doctors. Such a referral would have meant Colin would have to have been assessed regardless of whether or not he was taken on. No such referral appears to exist, which led Dr. Orr to believe that Dr. Wilkins' concerns can't have been as great as he made out. A rather childish back-and-forth exchange from two highly respected doctors there. Long story short, Colin was sent to Feltham rather than Broadmoor. Whilst at Feltham, Colin was instructed to make frequent visits to the Portman Clinic in Northwest London as an outpatient. According to their website, the Portman Clinic offers specialist long-term help for children, young people and adults with disturbing sexual behaviours, criminality and violence. Colin attended roughly 40 counselling sessions at the clinic and appeared to be showing a willingness to fight his condition. It was all just a ruse though because unbeknownst to his counsellors, Colin was secretly writing down his sick and twisted fantasies involving children between his sessions. The details of his fantasies involved sexual activity with very young boys and girls. He dreamed of taking them against their will, as he had with the boy in January 1991, and sexually assaulting them before strangling them to death. Would you be surprised if I told you Colin Hatch didn't serve the full three and a half years he was sentenced to serve at Feltham. Of course you wouldn't. In early 1993, Colin was relocated to Onley Young Offender Institution in Rugby, Warwickshire. It's around 90 miles northwest of London. Whilst at Onley, Colin's case was sent to a parole review committee. This came as a result of him continually attending counselling sessions and fooling everyone around him into thinking he was rehabilitated. The committee recommended his release to the then Home Secretary, Ken Clark, and his case, as well as the safety of the public, were allegedly considered by the Home Office. Colin Hatch was released on parole from Onley Young Offender Institution on April 29, 1993. He was told to continue his counselling sessions at the Portman Clinic, though he wasn't offered his first session until June 17th, 1993, exactly seven weeks after his release date. That's too long, isn't it? for a repeat sex offender. Surely they should go to the top of the priority list when it comes to booking counselling sessions? When June 17th arrived, Colin cancelled his appointment. It was rescheduled to July 1st, two weeks later, but when that date came around, the session was cancelled once more, this time by the counsellor. The reason was due to a family bereavement. The first session was again rescheduled, this time to July 23rd, 1993. That's just over three weeks after the cancelled second appointment and a full 12 weeks removed from Colin's release date. During that time, Ian Hearns, who was appointed as Colin's probation officer, explained that Colin's behaviour did not justify a recall to a young offender institution. That decision was backed up by Chief Probation Officer John Walters. Having said that, Colin did at one point tell Ian that he was frightened something might happen. The technicality was that, because Colin didn't say he had done something, or was going to do something, his comment wasn't flagged. The rearranged counselling appointment on July 23rd, 1993 wasn't cancelled, but it also wasn't attended by Colin. The reason for that is because of what happened four days prior, on July 19th, 1993. It's a bit disturbing to know that the events I'm about to describe took place while I was celebrating my fourth birthday. The unemployed Colin Hatch lived in a ten-storey tower block with his mum at Norfolk Close in East Finchley. One source said his brother also lived there, but whether he did or not is irrelevant to the story. Colin was well known to the other residents and had even been given a nickname. They referred to him as The Doorman due to his constant presence at the entrance of the tower block. Our pedophilic villain was constantly on the lookout for his next victim. On July 19th, Colin was in his usual spot at the entrance of Norfolk Close Tower Block when a 12-year-old boy walked past with his head down as if he was looking for something. The boy had lost his bus pass and was frantically trying to locate it. Seeing an opportunity to make one of his fantasies become a reality, 21-year-old Colin asked the boy if he was any good at setting up video games. Colin said he had one upstairs in his flat but that he had no idea how to work it. Luckily, a female neighbour interrupted Colin's attempts to lure the 12-year-old to his flat by informing the child that she had found his bus pass. If not for that neighbour's impeccable timing, the young boy may not have survived the night. An incredibly frustrated Colin waved as the boy walked off, probably towards the nearest bus stop, and carried on looking for another victim. Sadly, the next person he laid sights on didn't share the same look as the 12-year-old. Sean Williams started July 19th, as he did every weekday. He got up, went to school, played with his friends, and anxiously waited for the end-of-school bell to ring, as we all did in our younger years. Each source used said that Sean was either seven or eight. Some of them said seven, some of them said eight. There's so much inconsistency that I can't say for sure how old he actually was. After school, Sean was taken to the dentist after being picked up by his mum, Lynn. With the dentist trip completed, the mum and son combo went home. Sean immediately removed his uncomfortable school clothes, and he changed into something less stuffy. Shorts and a t-shirt. Classic. July 1993 in the UK was a rather cool one compared to the summers of previous years. The mean central England temperature was 15.2 degrees Celsius, It's about 0.8 degrees below normal. 15.2 degrees Celsius is roughly 59 degrees Fahrenheit for those who use the Imperial system. Once dressed, Sean retrieved his mountain bike and he rode off, shouting, ''See you later, Mum!'' to Lynn. Sean lived at the George Inn public house with Lynn, his dad John, and his older sister Sarah, who was 13 at the time of this story's events. I believe Sean's parents were amicably separated at this time, though they did co-manage the pub and they'd done so since March in 1993. The George Inn was located at 35 Market Place, around 50 to 100 yards away from Norfolk Close. It went on to be demolished in the early 2000s. The location has since had an apartment building built on it, it's called Elm Tree Close. Whilst her son was riding his bike in the car park of the George Inn, Lynn was on her way out to run an errand. Before driving off, she said to her son, I'll see you later, Sean. Sean replied, Love you, Mum, and off she drove. She didn't know it yet, but those were the last words Lynn's son would ever say to her. Within an hour, he would be dead. The scene was now set. Young Sean Williams was riding his mountain bike alone in the area surrounding the George Inn and its neighbouring streets. Paedophilic predator Colin Hatch was on the lookout at the entrance of Norfolk Close. At some point that evening, Sean was summoned over by Colin, and he was seen by a witness entering the tower block with him. Given the fact Colin had almost successfully used the video game line with the 12-year-old boy earlier in the evening, it's only logical to think that a similar method of enticement was probably used. Things soon escalated once Sean and Colin were in the foyer of the tower block. Colin grabbed Sean and dragged him into the elevator. Once on the 10th floor, Colin forcibly led Sean to his flat, and once inside, straight to his bedroom. I'm not going to go into detail with regards to what happened next, but Colin sexually assaulted Sean before suffocating him to death by placing a plastic bag over his head. Colin would later say the following in relation to what happened in his bedroom that night. He was quite scared and got up and walked to the window to shout for help, but I did not let him. I held him by the throat and he started struggling. I did not expect to kill him. I thought it would be the same as the other offences, but then it just got out of hand. It is in thought that this entire chain of events happened within a maximum period of half an hour of Sean last seeing his mum at the George Inn car park. Despite Colin saying he got no sexual enjoyment out of the killing, I think it's fair to say that's nonsense. The fantasies he wrote down suggest he enjoyed every last second of his attack on Sean. Once he'd killed Sean, Colin's next move was to put his body in two bin bags that he had to tape together. He then placed Sean's body inside the elevator and sent it to the 6th floor before walking out of the tower block. Shortly after Colin had left the block, Sean's body was discovered by some other residents, although they thought it was simply bags of rubbish that someone had inconsiderately left in the lift. It wasn't long before the local postman and his friend also spotted the bin bags. They, however, investigated further and were the ones who realised there was a body inside of the bags. The police were called and they soon arrived at the scene. Colin decided to return to the block later that evening and was swiftly arrested upon arrival after confessing to what he'd done. One of the officers recalled Colin saying, I am going to top myself. I think that's a primarily British idiom, top myself. He meant he was going to kill himself. He said that because he was shit scared of what would happen to him in prison once word got out as to why he was there. Child sex offenders are treated with great disdain in prisons, and as a result, they're typically placed on a vulnerable prisoner wing. That's where inmates are placed who would be at risk of attack from other inmates if they were kept in the mainstream prison population. One article I read said the VPU, the Vulnerable Prisoner Unit, is nicknamed the Numbers Wing, or Beast Wing, by the inmates. With Colin Hatch in custody, a search of his flat was undertaken by the police. This was when they discovered all of his graphic fantasy writings stashed away in a wardrobe. The police described the catalogue of material as a set of blueprints that Colin could follow when attacking children in real life. One such piece, titled My Sexual Experience with a Ten-Year-Old, was essentially a carbon copy of what happened to Sean Williams, with the only exception being that the victim in the fantasy was a girl. It reads... I am standing in the living room overlooking a mixed sex school which has infants and juniors. School has come out. It does not look as if I am going to be lucky tonight. Hold on. A young girl has just come out by herself. Colin goes on to write about taking the young girl to his bedroom where he sexually assaults her after pouring her a glass of milk. He then wrote about choking her to death when she asked to leave and putting her body in bin bags. The similarities between fantasy and reality are there for all to see. Remember that rearranged appointment at the Portman Clinic on July 23rd? That ended up being the day that Colin Hatch appeared at Hendon Magistrates Court, charged with the murder of Sean Williams four days earlier. No application of bail was made by Colin's solicitor. I assume the reasoning was that it would have only been rejected anyway, due to the risk Colin posed to the public, especially children. The trial took place six months later, in January 1994. Not one to own up to the full extent of what he'd done, Colin Hatch pleaded not guilty to murdering Sean Williams. He, instead, pleaded guilty to manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. That old chestnut. Case prosecutor John Bevan, QC, made the following statement to the jury. There is in this case no dispute that the defendant unlawfully killed Sean Williams. The issue here is not whether he did it. The issue is his mental responsibility for what he did. Is he guilty of murder or manslaughter? He is a man with a personality disorder, but the responsibility for what he did was his, and it was murder. In the plan, he knew the victim would make a fuss, and killing and disposing of the body was part of the plan. Basically, the jury was left to decide amongst themselves whether this was a murder committed by a sane man or manslaughter committed by someone with severe mental health issues. After two and a half hours of deliberation, the jury returned to the courtroom with a verdict. They found the defendant, Colin Hatch, guilty of the murder of Sean Williams. Judge Nina Lowry handed Colin a life sentence on January 28th, 1994, but no minimum term to serve was set. Explaining that decision, Judge Lowry said the following. In my judgment, you should never be released into the community when there remains the slightest danger that you will re-offend. Three years ago, when you were before a court for offences committed against young boys, the views of the medical authorities differed. Therefore, the court had no power that you be detained indefinitely. In this terrible case, it's plain to me you are highly dangerous to the public. The medical opinion today is that you are likely to remain so for the foreseeable future, and that's the reason why I have decided that a minimum recommendation for the number of years you must serve is not appropriate. Once the verdict was confirmed and the sentence handed out, the Middlesex Probation Service went on record to confirm that Colin had been identified as a potential danger whilst he was on parole. They went on to say that the decision not to recall him to prison was justified, because the behaviour they observed did not warrant it. A new comprehensive training program was introduced for all probation officers responsible for supervising sex offenders as a direct result of this case. That makes sense, given how many times Colin Hatch was either given a slap on the wrist or released on probation after sexually assaulting several children. New procedures were also introduced to ensure psychiatric appointments were made for paroled sex offenders before their release. Sean's mum Lynn made the following statement after Colin Hatch's sentencing. The sentence that Colin Hatch received can never be long enough. He must now face the consequences of his actions and I hope that he suffers the pain that he has brought to our family for many, many years to come. He took away Sean's life, the opportunity of us seeing him grow and become a man, one of the joys of parenthood. All that we are left with now are treasured and precious memories of a loving son and brother. We feel a sense of emptiness and despair. The day Sean was murdered, part of us died with him. I don't pity Hatch. I don't despise or hate him. It goes much deeper than that, but I cannot express my feelings. Over the years, the amount of money the state has spent on Hatch's so-called treatment has been thousands of pounds. But to what ends? Never again must a child be murdered by a pervert. Never again must a family have to suffer this experience. And never again must Hatch be released back into our community. Fast forward 17 years to February 22nd. 2011. 38-year-old Colin Hatch was serving his sentence on the vulnerable prisoner wing at HMP Full Sutton in East Yorkshire. Fellow vulnerable prisoner Damien Fokes, a 35-year-old from Northampton, serving a life sentence for three knife-point robberies over four days, decided to make a move on Colin. Damien was on the same wing as Colin because of his history of self-harm. After barricading himself and Colin into an empty cell, Damien told the officers he wouldn't kill him if they stayed outside. That was a lie. Damien strangled Colin to death by using the cell's bedding. He effectively hanged him. A prison spokesman said, An incident at HMP Full Sutton resulted in the death of prisoner Colin Hatch. This is now a matter for the police. It wasn't the first time Damien Fawkes had attacked a sex offender. Damien is the person who slashed the throat of Sower murderer Ian Huntley at HMP Franklin on March 21st, 2010. Damien had fashioned a shank by melting a plastic spoon and attaching a razor blade to the top. Despite slitting Huntley's throat, Damien somehow missed every vital artery in his neck. Huntley was in the hospital for three days and he needed 21 stitches in his neck to seal the 7-inch long gash. Damien was moved to HMP Full Sutton as a direct result of the attack on Ian Huntley. On October 5th, 2011, Damien Fawkes was found guilty of attempted murder and handed a minimum term of 20 years by Judge Mr Justice Colson. His initial minimum term for the robberies was 12 years. In an ironic twist, Damien Fox had his own throat slit in an extremely similar way to his own attack on Ian Huntley. The attack on Damien happened on October 2nd, 2016, and was caused by fellow inmate Kevin McCarthy. Fox, like Huntley, survived the attack. One final point on Colin Hatch before we finish... Based on his writings and boastings whilst in prison, it's thought that he sexually assaulted up to 15 young boys. No other victims have ever come forward. And that was the story of British child murderer Colin Hatch. Thanks again to Scott Jerry for suggesting that case. I've got four new reviews to read out this week, three of which are from the British Murder's Facebook page. Thank you, Zoe Ward, for recommending British Murders on Facebook. Zoe said, Love this podcast. Can't wait for the next episode. Also love the dad facts at the beginning. Thank you, Steph Thomas, for recommending British Murders on Facebook. Steph said, I love this. It's short and to the point. I think I found it two weeks ago, and I'm already on season four, episode eight. I absolutely love this sort of thing. Thank you, Wayne Bond, for recommending British Murders on Facebook. Wayne said, been listening from day dot, going from strength to strength. And finally, thank you Apple podcast user British Turtle for leaving British Murders a five star rating and review. They said, I got the t-shirt for my birthday and listen to every episode. Keep it up. I really appreciate your kind words, Zoe, Steph, Wayne and British Turtle. So cool that someone got a British Murders t-shirt for their birthday. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Podchaser, or by visiting britishmurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify now, so please do that as well. You can become a Patreon member to gain early access to ad-free episodes, or donate on a one-off basis via buymeacoffee.com. Links to both of those are on my website. Please continue emailing me your case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com. Contact me on the website, hit me up on social media, whatever you prefer. You'll not only get the episode covered but you'll also get a shout-out. Lovely stuff. Well, that's it for now. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio!